Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another version of Bill Roden on Sports here in beautiful Midtown Manhattan, across from Lincoln Center at the ABC building uh, with my friend and co-host, the great Jamal Murphy. Jamal, what's up? Not much. Uh, interesting times. Great times for us, man. Yeah. You know, I, in the media, man, the worse it gets, the better it is for us. I hear that. <laughs> like a shark. It's a great time. Uh, it must be then. Yeah. <laughs> Um, our guest is a friend of the show making a second appearance on Bill Roden on Sports, uh, the great Lynn Elmore, a former University of Maryland uh, All-America, uh, NBA pro, uh, an attorney, um, is a uh, uh, broadcaster, sportscaster. Looks like he's going to be calling games for uh, Fox FS1 uh, this this basketball season. And uh, you'll also be able to catch Lynn on October 24th at the Coffin Theater uh, in Lincoln Center doing a little debate about pay-for-play and other things. But, hey, hey Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. So, Lynn, um, there's a lot going on, man, in the news. You, you mentioned something with social media. We'll get to that later. Um, do you have your own little social media pod? I'm just curious. This is not why we had you on the show, but social media is something we're going to discuss a little later. But do you have your own little social media um, and anybody you ever work for, do you have your own social media um, rules, rules of the road for what you tweet, what you don't tweet? Absolutely. I mean, uh, what I don't do is, you know, I don't insult people. Right. Um, I don't, you know, I don't tweet, uh, you know, bad words. <laughs> and quite honestly, I mean, uh, other than that, I, you know, I try to uh, try to educate try to illuminate to the point I have, and certainly I get things off my mind, Which, uh, but I do it in a respectful manner or in a manner that's somewhat sarcastic. But nevertheless, it's nothing that could ever be censored, at least in my mind. Hmm. Yeah. it's it's. Uh, I guess probably the next year or so we'll be getting new rules of the road for uh, <laughs> you know, for social media. Uh, but primarily, man, you know, what we what I really want to talk to you about, I wanted to talk to you this for a while. Um, I, I call it Sneaker wars. Anyway, well, speaking of sneaker wars, maybe that's they're coming I mean, to pick up. New York City, they're man. coming I'm to pick sorry. up Rick, Rick Patino. <laughs> Where's Rick? He's hiding out. Oh, he's in Lynn Elmore's apartment. <laughs> hey, so so listen. Uh, let's start from the top, ma'am. You you've been talking about this as long as I've known you. You've been talking about the the dirty underside, the underbelly of college sports for a long, long time. The agents, the the the. Uh, recruiting the AAU. Uh, what do you make of this latest? I mean, Rick Pitino was effectively fired September 27th. He got caught up in a, in this, in a, in a, in a um, shoe scheme or AAU scheme that had 10 people indicted, 
including four assistant coaches, all brothers, by the way, mm. uh, global marketing exec for Adidas. What, what do you what do you make about uh, what do you make of all this, man? Uh, you know, I believe it's been a long time coming. Mm. This is uh, this is a business that has gone on for decades, mm. and I can remember when I was a sports agent back in the early '90s, where you know there were still opportunities for people to use money to influence young people to sign with agents to sign with schools to sign with financial advisors there are financial advisors who would pull tricks in association with rival agents to try to uh take a client away from a particular agent i know that happened to me mm. um in fact uh you know a guy who was associated with one of those agent one of those financial advisors was just convicted of defrauding um, Tim Duncan not too long ago, Charles right. Banks. So, right. you know, I- I'm telling you, it has happened uh, so often over the years, and I'm really curious as to why it's just now coming to light. So many people don't believe that this is a crime, or if it is, it's a, quote, victimless crime. But, you know, I, I-, I fail to see the victimlessness in it uh, with regard to, you know, utilizing money to influence young people, uh, paying bribes, uh, for people to utilize services, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think that now that the Department of Justice has gotten involved uh, through the FBI, I think that the net is going to widen, uh, particularly if they put pressure on you know, the four that were arrested and, and actually the five or six that were arrested. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it almost sounds like in a way, and I've heard other people say this, that you, it, that you might think it's a good thing uh, that this happened, uh, you know, for the sport, for the kids, is that is that the way you're thinking? Yeah, if I didn't make myself clear before, that I can do it now. Yes, this is absolutely a good thing. Mm. Um, it rids, uh, it could rid the sport of the nefarious, uh, you know, under, under the table stuff that goes on on a constant basis um, that tilts the playing field with regard to top people and, and sends the wrong message with regard to you know, how business has to be conducted from an ethical, moral standpoint. I mean, that's what the laws are supposed to protect anyway, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So so, so, take, so I'm a parent, you know, listen to this. You know, I've got a kid, a couple of kids playing AAU ball, and, you know, you know how this thing, all politics are local. How does this affect right. me? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my kid getting a scholarship? You know, what does this mean for parents who've got kids playing AAU ball and, you know, um, you know, uh, what are the imp- are there any implications? With what what do they look for? What does this mean? Well, when you say what does it mean, I mean first of all, they have to recognize that if offered money uh, by the shoe companies, by even the schools, beyond you know what is the uh, normal uh, offer of a grant and aid, uh, if anybody else offers to try to steer. Uh, and influence you to make a decision. Just think that it it could be illegal, and, and more than likely it is illegal. That's why they're hushing it up. That's why it's not in the open. Um, so if you want to participate in something uh, an illegal scheme, then I would say you know go right ahead, but be careful uh, you know not to get caught. Obviously, because I think going forward, as we talk about the the per- participants in this. One of the things in my mind that will be an ultimate deterrent is that you're going to hold the people, if they solicit the money, you know, and even maybe in, in some instances 
you know, that they're going to be held accountable in some way, shape, or form. Remember, you know, it may not be illegal if the money's offered and the kids take it. It may not be illegal on the basis of, of criminal code. But now you're talking about financial advisors. You're talking about agents who are involved in paying people to, to influence these young people. The NBA now should be involved because these are all services that the NBA uh, players are going to use eventually. And I'm sure they have an interest in cleaning up that that type of business. So if the NBA and the NCAA kind of uh, collaborated and, and put some kind of um, penalty out there, if you take an illegal uh, bribe or if you take an illegal money to influence your decision to go with a shoe company or to go to a school, et cetera, uh, if they can combine and, and make a decision that maybe you delay your draft entry for a year or two years, I guarantee you that would stop that whole business in its track because not one of these kids – who has an opportunity to play in the league uh, and play in the league for a long time and make a lot of money, they're not going to want to mess with their draft status. Mm, right. What, the thing to me is, like, what took so long? I mean, we've all known that this kind of stuff was going on. Um, what do you think took so long before, uh, I guess, the Department of Justice or anybody really uh, tried to crack down on this? I, I think it was a lack of concrete evidence to a certain extent. I think a lot of it was the culture. You know, the culture in the in, in the neighborhood also. Nobody wants to be a snitch. And then that's the same thing in the basketball world. Mm. Um, I, I think a combination of those things. Uh, but, but, you know, the lack of concrete evidence, the lack of pressure on somebody to uh, produce that concrete evidence, um, and, and really a lack of will at one point on the investigators and on the Department of Justice. Because we've caught a lot of guys. A lot of guys have been caught embezzling money from players. Um, if they were pressed in that situation and, you know, offered some leniency, if they were to give that information to, uh, you know, the authorities, we might have been able to nip this in the bud a lot sooner. But as it stands right now, um, you know, it was a failed financial advisor who the SEC caught, turned him over to the FBI, and, you know, he offered to give that information in exchange for a more lenient sentence. So, you know, you got a guy that got squeezed. Mm. He started to flip and, and created some opportunities for investigation, and that's why we have what we have. And, this can't, and it can't just be college basketball, right? You got, like, you know, football is, is a bigger money maker uh, than college basketball is. Do you think it, 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 it transcends the sport? You know, the sport? Yeah, I, I think that uh, the difference, though, is, you know, with uh, the shoe companies and the coaches taking – bribes, et cetera, et cetera, I think a lot of the difference has to do with the fact that, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, the shoe companies providing a lot of money to these guys to turn and become, you know, uh, wearers of the shoes, endorsers of the shoes. And and from that standpoint, you know, I don't think you have as many right. uh, uh, guys doing that in, in the football ranks. However, with the agents and others, that's a, that's a situation that certainly I think people are going to start looking at. And if uh, the assistant coaches who are considered public uh, officials because of their association with institutions that are accepting federal funds, I think they're going to start taking a look at football more closely now. Why, why do you think it's just Adidas? Uh, I've heard Nike, somebody saying, well, Nike, because you know, of all the names you'd hear, and I want to get into Patino, uh, well, let's get to Patino first before I ask you the question. Are you surprised? I mean, you know, Rick has had so many lives and so so much stuff he got away with. Um, are you surprised by this, uh, by, by Rick being kind of in the middle of this? Uh, 
Well, I'll tell you what. I, um, I've known Rick Pitino since 1983. And, you know, as the years have gone on and as he's evolved into, you know, the master coach that he has, um, you know, the stories have come out. Uh, the story, the whispers are there as far as how he operates. I've never had anything concrete to say that, you know, Rick Pitino hasn't done this in the ethical way, but the whispers have been there. Well, the book, uh, so, too. Remember the book where the, where the, uh, the woman wrote the book? And, and mention. Oh, <laughs> well, I didn't read that. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, but, but go ahead. I, I didn't want to. <laughs> you said the whisper. The whisper is actually a chapter in a book. But, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. That, that, yeah, that's somebody screaming at the top of their lungs. But <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I really never, I never heard anything concrete. But again, when you have the type of uh, rumor and innuendo, there's, sometimes there's got to be some truth to it. So when you ask am I surprised, the, the answer is no. I'm not surprised considering, you know, all the things that you've heard over the last 30 years. Yeah, one of the interesting things, and it's a sad thing to me, uh, looking at this case, uh, four assistant coaches were indicted among the 10 uh, people indicted in this. And you look at the assistant coaches, uh, Chuck Person from Auburn, there's a coach from Oklahoma State, Arizona, USC, they were they were all black mm-hmm. assistant coaches, yeah. uh, and as far as I know, that's that's they're still a minority in the coaching profession. Right. So what 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 do you make of that, if anything? Well, I think it's another one of the dirty secrets in college basketball, where you know you have a, a number of African American coaches who are designated as recruiters. Right. Um, you can't say that you start at the bottom and that you work your way up because some of those guys have been working for 10, 11 years right. and still in the, quote, recruiter's phase as opposed to, you know, being part and parcel of strategy and tactics uh, on the bench, uh, on the on the practice floor. You know, that that's part of the problem I have. And the pressure on those guys to remain where they are, and they get paid a lot of money now. There's no question about it. Um, but to, to remain in that position, they have to continue to deliver players. And in order to deliver players, I guess in that competitive world, there's sometimes you have to stoop to conquer, if you will, and, and that's what happens. That's where the pressure comes in. You know, I'd love to see, and my son is uh, assistant coach and director of basketball operations um, at, at Fairfield University, and, you know, he's playing for a guy in Sidney Johnson who wants to groom another coach. And Sidney Johnson also happens to be African-American. Right. But, you know, coaches who want to groom young African-American coaches to become head coaches, you know, those are the kinds of guys you want to work for. Um, you know, if you're just in it for the money and you think that you can keep churning by bringing guys in uh, year after year, you know, more power to you. But there are a lot of guys upon whom that pressure to stay in the business falls on, and they wind up doing those things. Now, you know, you look at uh, a lot of coaches, not African-American head coaches, who only make up about 25% of the head coaches in, in Division One college basketball, where 75% of the players are of color in, in basketball. So there's an imbalance right there. Mm-hmm. But in, in order to groom these guys, they have to be part of everything. They're not just recruiters. And at some point, they have to graduate from being simply a recruiter to be more of a coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let, let me ask you something. This is sort of jumping around, but uh, you, you said your son, who we actually, last time we had you on the show, you talked about your son who was then at Manhattan, I believe. Uh, yeah. He was just, so happily, this is a happier situation. <laughs> um, but um, 
I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, wh- just where do you sit on protest? I'm wondering as we get into the college basketball season, I mean, there's been so much talk about athletes, particularly black athletes, particularly in football. Uh, uh, now we're approaching the basketball season, which is as black, if not blacker. 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 Yeah, blacker. What, what What's your take on the protest? Do you think we're going to see some? You're going to be calling games. Do you think we're going to see any protests uh, in college? Do you think – or yeah, well, let me – before I give an editorial. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think we're going to see? Um, I'm not so sure we're going to see um, protests such as, you know, kneeling for the anthem and such. Because if you if you really take a look at it, oftentimes they come out and if they're out there for the anthem – they stand facing each other. You know, they'll be arm in arm, uh, which I can see. You might see some kids arm in arm kneeling um, to that extent, but, you know, and it may be before the anthem. You know, I think a lot of coaches are going to lay down rules based upon university uh, promulgated rules that are going to, you know, maybe possibly put these scholarships, these uh, at Grand A's in jeopardy, although I don't know how they're going to enforce that. But I don't foresee a lot. Um, you know, pro athletes have a lot more freedom in my mind uh, mm. to be able to do that as opposed to college athletes. Yeah. There can there be protests in other ways, shapes, and forms. Mm. Um, you know, guys can speak out. Guys can be interviewed about it. And, you know, they have that option to do it. But uh, many times if a coach believes that his kids are going to protest and that's against university rules or even against the coach's rules, I suspect they'll keep them in the locker room. See, the pros have to be out there. If you look at the NFL and the NBA, mm. uh, because of deals that they've cut. People think it's because of patriotism, but a lot of times it's deals that they've cut with the armed forces who right. have the military uh, honor guard to, to display the flag and others that they have to be out there. Mm. When you, I mean, let's take this. You, you spent, you spent uh, double-digit years in the NBA. Uh, what's the mindset? I mean, and, and it's really this kind of almost gets in a workplace issue. Um, you know, when, when your employer kind of lays down right. the law and you know you really have to make decisions about your livelihood versus a stand you may take uh take us back when you were in the nba did anything ever come up with you uh where where guys talked about um you know protesting or not playing or you know grumbling about stuff well remember we when i played it was 1974 to 1984 I mean, there, the civil rights movement had kind of quieted down. Um, you know, the war in, in Vietnam was slowly coming to an end. Uh, certainly people wanted to discuss, you know, some more individual issues, but there was nothing seminal during mm-hmm. those years, I don't think, that got people really uh, aroused to the point where, you know, they were going to make statements in the workplace, which, you know, it has to be a, a pretty heavy thing for guys to, you know, put their their uh, their livelihoods at risk to, to make a statement. So, you know, we, that was one of those years, I think, where it wasn't quite apathy, but there wasn't enough to push you over to the point where, you know, you would take those stands. You can speak about a lot of things, but, I mean, nothing to the point as we have now uh, where demonstrating against, you know, police treatment of, of African-American males and, and other atrocities. Uh, we just didn't see that on, on the basis that we're seeing it now. Well, remember, there was no social media, too. And that, that gets, uh, we talked True. about that. There was not, in other words, I'm sure it was still going on, probably worse. Right. <laughs> right. Probably worse then. 
but there was no social media. There were no cameras. You didn't see it. Uh, yeah, but think about it, Bill. Think about it. I, I'm not sure it was worse mm-hmm. back then. I mean, I I, I remember being stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being treated reasonably well. I, mm-hmm. I think that. Um, I, I think over the but years, you, you were a star athlete too. Well, I mean, I mean, even when I wasn't recognized, okay. you know, I got I got stopped for speeding in the middle of Ohio <laughs> one time, and you know, the young guy couldn't have been more polite. Gave mm. me a ticket, of course, but couldn't have been more polite. You right. know, I was stopped in New York City, but I, I just think I really don't believe that the buildup, as you say, all of the misinformation, um, you know, all of the buildup of fear, it wasn't there yet. Mm. Um, I don't know if it was the crack epidemic that started in the 80s. I don't know if it was so many other issues. I mean, look at the argument with Clinton and, um, you know, when they passed their crime bill right. and all those things. That that was the culmination. But I think back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was almost it was almost like a detente. Mm. Um, but mm. nevertheless, it, it built back up again because of, of the crime wave and, and, and the preconceived notions of people um, and, uh, and the prejudices of people that assign color to this instead of looking at human beings. Well, what about the NBA? Uh, you know, the NBA starts in a week or two. Uh, you mentioned you, you probably don't think you'll see anything uh, as far as college basketball protests go. But what about the NBA? You know, it's, it's interesting. The NFL players make less. They have less uh, security. And they are the ones who are, are taking knees here. NBA players, much more secure, make more money. But we, we haven't seen anything like kneeling. Prima donnas, prima donnas. Uh, do, <laughs> do you foresee NBA players, uh, you know, doing some sort of protest? Or do you think this is just an NFL thing? Well, it's quite possible. I Remember, I, I've written and, and stated, you know, I always thought that the NFL, because of the conservatism of ownership and you know, the NFL players not having guarantees and stuff, oftentimes they were forced into being the go-along, get-along type of league where, you know, they they might have had these feelings uh, that they needed to, to protest, feelings that they needed to speak out, but they didn't do it because of those constraints. And I always thought that the NBA, because they had far more progressive owners, that they could do things like wear T-shirts, I can't breathe, right. or, you know, stand together and, 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 you know, against gun violence and do some other things because they had they were in concert with the league. I, I think right now Adam Silver is going to be in somewhat of a quandary because obviously they have a rule where you have to be out there um, for the national anthem, and I think the rule says you have to stand, whereas the NFL rule says that players should stand. And, you know, that, that kind of verbiage it makes a vast difference. Right. Um, but I, I, I think that, again – there are going to be some guys, if if organized properly, um, that are going to make some kind of a statement. It may not be with the anthem. It may, like I said, be with a T-shirt. It may be with a gesture. Right. But, you know, I can't see them not being able to find a way to be in solidarity with their NFL brothers. How, how you know, I, I, you know, this is so weird. We get this very unique dynamic that, it, that probably does not exist anywhere in the United States where you've got a group of young African-American men for the most part uh, in the NBA and the NFL surrounded by, in an arena, largely almost, I guess, 97% white fan base. And, and it, it, you know, historically, I guess, 
it, you know, it, it, it just, you know, I guess fans got used to players not saying anything. You know, he's black, but you're not really saying anything. Kind of like the Michael Jordan effect. But it seems like now it's, you know, with more and more young black kids really connecting to, the, to their communities and saying, well, you know, this, is, this could happen to me or, you know, uh, although I'm making money, I'm getting calls from my sister and my brother and my nephews and cousins, and we just can't act like it's all hunky-dory. Do you think that tension can, do you think that's going to explode into either boycotts or people staying away, or do you think that the, we're so hooked, we're so hooked on the NFL, so hooked on the NBA that, you know, we'll figure out, white folks will figure out a way to keep going to the games and, um, and somehow make peace with, you know, somehow make peace with all this. Uh, honestly, I think it's the latter. I, I think that sports is so woven into our social fabric that, um, you know, folks, there may be a few, and, and right now it's been a vocal minority of people, even though, you know, they have been polling and the polls have changed from, you know, a majority against the players. Now a majority are with the players against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think those are the things that, you know, the, quote, opposition fears the most, the influence that these guys have and the influence on their kids. I mean, take a look at what's happening in the high schools. Right. You know, they've, there have been a number of stories where young high school football players have been kicked off teams mm. or suspended because they've emulated their heroes mm. on the field um, and have taken a knee during the anthem or, or some another some other way protested and that's what the authority fears the most that this is influence and that the sports figures have a greater degree of influence over these kids and many times even their parents or you know the other elders in their communities and, and as far as the players are concerned again to me it, it's heartening because i've always believed that the key to success for for athletes both during and after their careers are over are developing self-reliance, and, you know, that gives you power. And these guys, many of these guys now are utilizing their resources that they've gotten from playing the game in many positive ways. I mean, you can say what you want about Colin Kaepernick, but to commit a million dollars to pro-social causes and to go out and teach these kids their rights and to be a stand-up guy in that regard, I mean, that, that is a role model. But the, the biggest uh, and most important thing is self-reliance and then community responsibility. And you nailed it, Bill. Hearing from people in your community as opposed to being so separate. Uh, right. A couple of generations ago, guys would be so separated from their communities um, that you know people didn't feel like they could count on them in, in many ways, shapes, and forms. But now guys are coming back. And, and I think that that's extremely important to have that connection. I thought it was important when, when uh, Michael Brown was shot and killed in Ferguson, I said, you know what, I was surprised prior to uh, them ultimately coming out that nobody said a word because that could be your brother, that could right, be your right, right. father, that could be your uncle. Mm-hmm. And, of course, a couple of weeks later, guys did come out. I'm not going to take credit for that, for that article <laughs> in USA Today, but, you know, somehow or another, all of a sudden people were wearing the T-shirts you know, I can't breathe for um, Eric Garner in in, uh, in New York. You know, I, so uh, guys are starting to get they're starting to get it. Yeah, you know, I heard. Um, you know, I, I like I write a, this column for the Undefeated called Locker Room Talk. I take you know one one uh, yet another contribution the president has made to journalism. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I thought, and you know, you spent years in locker rooms. I've spent years in locker rooms as 
some as an athlete, primarily as a, as a journalist. And I always thought that the locker room was a great a great metaphor for what could happen positively. Because you know, you you've been in so many locker rooms. You got guys, white guys, black guys, uh, black guys from middle class neighborhoods, black guys who were poor. You had all types of people in this locker room, and mm-hmm. you had to find a way. You know, particularly if you're going to be a successful team, you had to find a way to get a, a common denominator. And that's what some of the, the – I was speaking to some guys after the Chargers game in New York, and uh, Russell Okun was saying, you know, the, the locker room, if, if we could just sort of package this up and use it as a formula, because we've had – he was saying we've had a lot of conversations that we've never had before, you know, about protests and flags. And, frankly, a lot of white guys – who've got a lot of bright friends on their team and really hadn't really realized what some of these guys had to go through to get here, you know, uh, in terms of being stopped and just stuff. And um, just wonder what you think about that, about just about the locker room as sort of a metaphor for uh, what, you know, what could happen. In other words, if you, if you use the locker room to kind of iron out stuff in order to achieve a higher goal, which is, you know, winning. Well, I, I think the first element of common ground, and, and you not, nailed it, is it is about finding common ground and going from there. first element of common ground is that mutual respect. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes that in order to be in that locker room. So every guy has to respect the route that another guy took in order to get there and be a part of that team. And from there, you know, it's about walking a mile in, in another guy's fights or another guy's uh, basketball shoes. And to truly understand, and you have enough time, you have enough exposure to be able to discuss these things. And you can have disagreements. I remember even back in the day, you know, we'd have some disagreements, but it always came out right because in the end, we depended on each other. Hmm. And in depending on, you get into the habit of depending on folks out on the court, then you start to realize that, you know, there's a dependency, um, and, and I'm saying it in a positive sense, there's a dependency on, you know, your belief in me, there's a dependency that you'll be there if I fall or I'll be there if you fall. Um, and, and that becomes a habit. And I think that's so important. And I think that's another one of those influences that seems to be so dangerous to, quote, the opposition. Mm-hmm. Our guest has been the great Lynn Elmore, uh, sportscaster, intellectual, thinker, um, a debater on October 24th at the Kaufman Theater. Right. Um, and, and you can get, that's that's uh, 7 p.m. October 24th, and you can uh, get tickets to that debate on pay for play at intelligencesquaredus.org. So mm-hmm. check that out. Hey, Ellen, before we let you go, um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you just, again, we're kind of jumping around. Uh, Jerry Jones, getting back to this thing, Jerry Jones told his player, anybody who protests, uh, I'll bench him. I'll fire him. Well, what's your, uh, just as a citizen, as an attorney, but also as a former professional athlete, what's your reaction to that? Um, I, first of all, I think it's it's one of those situations where it's a threat that makes Jerry Jones look good. Look good, but I'm sure prior to that, he's had conversations with Ezekiel Elliott. And, <laughs> Don't and you say <laughs> a whole bunch of guys. You know what y'all gonna do? <laughs> if I say Can that, I say this? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he's still paying paying deference to, you know, the guys you know, on his team that that, uh, that matter because he does not want to sit them, particularly not at this stage. Right, where, two and three. Got a losing record. <laughs> got a losing record. Correct. Right, um, right. So, I mean, to me, that's 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 
Trumpian, if nothing else. Right. Um, you know, a lot of sable rattling. Right. But in the end, you know, he's talking about stuff that probably will not happen now. Um, so, you know, that's just Jerry Jones. I think that's a headline for today and tomorrow we'll move on to something else. And secondly and lastly, you started the conversation when we were talking about sneaker war, you know, the sneaker wars and the deed is that you think this scandal was good uh, for the industry. The same thing I'm going to ask you about the, the protest. At the end of the day, do you think that, that this has been good for, um, period, do you think it's been good? Yeah, anytime you start dialogue, it's been good. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the low-information people who will not listen to reason as to why, you know, players are, are making a statement. And I'm not talking to folks who, you know, think that they should even do more to disrupt the games. I mean, those are two opposite ends of the spectrum. But the fact that dialogue has started, that people are starting to talk about, you know, it's not the flag, it's what the flag symbolizes. And, you know, all of those things, the hopes and dreams of, of being an American aren't available to everyone. And, you know, we got to start taking a look at areas in our society that, um, that we, need, we need to fix to have a serious conversation, particularly in a period in time when it seems like we've regressed in, instead of progressed over the last, I don't know, since January. So, mm. you know, anytime you can uh, promote dialogue and get people talking about something that normally they wouldn't talk about or would be hushed, I think it's positive. Will you stand? <laughs> well, I, I've, let me tell you, I've always stood, but here's why. You know, in 1968, I went to a baseball game. I wanted to sit, you know, like a lot of brothers. I, I, either that or I wanted to put a black glove on and raise my hand like right. Tommy and John. Mm. But my father, I was at the game with him, and my father told me, look, man, <laughs> you know, your, your, your maternal grandfather fought in World War One. got no credit for it. Mm. The French loved them. But when we came back here, he was still an N-word. Mm. You know, I was in the Army, and, you know, I'm guarding German POWs in Mississippi, and they could go eat in restaurants that I couldn't eat in, and I still had that flag on my helmet. Mm. But, you know, you got to remember, that your, your, folks, your folks built this country. Yeah. And that red stripe on there, that's their blood, too. Mm. And if you sit, all you're doing is allowing them to exclude you from, from the discussion. Mm. He said, I'm not sitting because they're not excluding me. <laughs> I, I got hope for this country. Mm. And when I heard that, you know, first is my father, so I got to stand up. <laughs> <laughs> I started to realize what he's saying. And, yes, I stand, and I tell my sons to stand, but I tell them why they're standing. Mm. It's still the greatest country in the world, and your forefathers helped build this country, and don't let anybody ever exclude you from that. Now, I understand why guys are making a statement. It's not about the flag. Right. It's about the treatment. Right. And, you know, I, I do my part when I write, when I speak and everything, and I protest that treatment as well. Uh, so we all do it different ways. But that's the reason I personally stand. But as attributed to Voltaire, you know, they I'll defend to the death their right to say it, as have our military and our first responders, particularly our military, who many folks have come out and said, you know, they're not protecting that piece of cloth. Right, right. That's just a symbol. They're protecting the values that that cloth represents. Mm -hmm. And, you know, go ahead, you know, make your statement. I may not agree with you, but I put my life on the line so that you can do that. There's not very many countries that allow that to happen. So, you know, when you ask whether I stand or I sit, that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that um, 
the, what these young people are doing. That doesn't mean that that's not a right way to go after it either. Would you like to see them stop? I, I advocate just don't play the you know don't play the national anthem for a game. I mean, you you immediately politicize an event. I mean, I go to concert. I go to jazz concert. They don't play the national anthem for a jazz concert. They come in, sit down, and okay, here's Wynton Marcellus. I mean, they don't say let's please stand. I think there'd be a riot. You know, um, what, what do oh, you think? I, I would agree. I, I would agree that it's it's time now to really seriously think about taking the politics out of sport by taking the anthem out of sport and God bless America right. and all this other stuff and just play the games. Right. You know, after the games are over and people are leaving, if you want to play it instead of, you know, New York, New York, go ahead. Right. right. Nobody wants politics in sports unless it's their own politics. I, I know. I know. Hey, listen, Lynn, thank you so much, man. This has really been tremendous. You're always tremendous, but this has been great. Oh, no, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It gives me a chance to kind of air my, my feelings. You guys ask great questions. That's good dialogue. Thanks. Thank All right. you. Hey, hey, thank you, Lynn. Until next time. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. All right. The great Lynn Elmore, broadcaster, intellectual, uh, attorney, and uh, sportscaster. Um, great show. So uh, we'll be back. Yeah, Next we'll, week in Jamal, you know, tell tell our, our millions of fans where they can, you know, listen. Uh, obviously on iTunes, Bill Roden on Sports. Check us out. Uh, leave a comment. Uh, like the show. We'd, we'd really appreciate that. All the support we get, we uh, we appreciate for sure. Uh, we're on Twitter at BrosPod, B-R-O-S-P-O-D. Uh, you can interact with us, ask questions, uh, you know, talk about topics you'd like us to discuss guests you'd like us to have on all that good stuff we're on facebook bill roden on sports we we uh post a lot of stuff from there even instagram check out bros the, pod yeah bro. we're all over the place bro. yeah check out the undefeated the undefeated, uh, the undefeated yes you can see my column locker room talk yeah um, and what, then, what, and, what and, else can we <laughs> and then this podcast will be posted on on the undefeated as well so uh we got a lot of good stuff coming and uh Thank yeah you. No, that was that was a great that was a great talk with uh the great Lynn Elmore. Thank you guys. Till next week. God bless and uh, you know, enjoy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.